Welcome back, America. It's you here with that music means the Hillsdale Dialogue is back once a week. Our wonderful sponsor, Hillsdale College, brings us a conversation about something that endures. And we spend an hour, four segments, talking about a matter of consequence. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. All of the previous dialogues, all eight years of them, are collected at hughforhillsdale.com. Last week, we began part one on Ulysses S. Grant. And Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and Professor Adam Carrington led us through a fascinating hour. I got a lot of email about that. And uh, so we begin immediately. Um, Dr. Arn, when we left off last week, I had not yet gotten deep into Ron Chernow's biography, but I have read Bruce Catton, as you have. I have read a lot of, uh, of Civil War history. But it is in Chernow that I come to appreciate the massive effort that Grant marshaled, the number of armies that he generaled, the, the much more challenging uh, job he had compared to Lee or any other general in actually American history to battle on our own continent, it's an extraordinary accomplishment. So I think like a teacher, and what the audience has just learned is, you has done more reading and now he's got a different view. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, Grant was... Uh, you know, uh, it's very difficult in a long political career to show quality all the way through it. That's very rare. And, uh, you know, because there's situations change and you're prepared for the last one and your character works in a certain way and all that stuff, you know, I think Donald Trump had a bad two weeks or a month maybe as much as that. But he did so much good, you know. Well, anyway, Grant, uh, there are problems in his career, but... First to last, you know, at the end, he was a heck of a guy. Right down to the time when he was dying, and Mark Twain was helping him write his really brilliant autobiography, which is worth reading. We're going to get there. I, I want to conclude Adam Carrington, though, 1864 to 1865, which is where I am in, in renewing my acquaintance with Grant. And he is the commander of armies as large as you can imagine in a time when Logistics is difficult and communications imperfect, and he generals in a way that uh, many favorably compare to Napoleon. Yes, and and we had never seen war on this scale, and we had never seen war that was as total as this, much less dealing with the fact of a civil war. And it's it's amazing when you see. I mentioned this last week, the germs of this, the beginning of this. Even when he's serving as a quartermaster in, in the Mexican War, he's learning not just the tactics. Lee, of course, was a, a brilliant tactician. But Grant was someone who could hold the, hold the whole in his head, not just as far as supplying an army and fighting with an army, but how to break up the South east to west. And I think you really see that shining forth when he is able to take over the armies entirely, despite how bloody and awful it was when he had to go head-to-head -head with Lee during that time that you're talking about. Indeed. And, Dr. Arn, we've talked about Lincoln a lot. You are a Lincoln scholar. And it took Lincoln a while to find the right general. But once he found him, he stuck with him, despite the now-documented drinking binges, which occurred not during combat, but when he, the pressure was off. It, he had this lifelong binge drinking issue. But Lincoln stuck with him. He didn't say the apocryphal, uh, let's send more whiskey like that to other generals. But he often stood by the man. And uh, a comment on Lincoln and Grant's relationship. Well, I've been trained as a historian by the great Martin, Martin Gilbert, and you have to have documentary evidence for everything. 
But once in a while, a quote is so good that it just has to be true. (laughs) 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 And and that's the one. Uh, He's drunk. He's drunk all the time. And uh, Lincoln said, find out what he's drinking and give it to the rest of them. Yeah. (laughs) You know what Chernow says about that is that Lincoln later said, uh, that is so good that we have to use it. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Even though he didn't say it, he said, I want it appropriated. So it's kind of his. Yeah. Well, see, I, so I believe, I don't know what Adam thinks. And Adam, Adam is, you know, I'm a Lincoln scholar because I studied with a great Lincoln scholar, and you just have to learn it all. But Adam, you know, has written on it and knows a lot about it and teaches it more than I do. But I, I will say, first of all, I think Lincoln was possessed of a great strategic vision. He understood uh, you can tell it early when he's trying to keep Kentucky and the Union and Maryland from getting away. He understood sort of how the war was going to break out. And so he was looking for somebody who would follow that view and you know, and embellish it. But also he was looking for somebody who would fight. And Lincoln did not confuse himself for a master tactician. And also he knew he wasn't there. And so when he was looking at generals, his frustration was he just couldn't get them to fight. And, you know, they were, uh, McClellan especially, you know, who was an opponent in the 1864 election, uh, McClellan was a fancy general and very skilled, and the troops loved him, and his army looked great, and he didn't fight much. And Lincoln was, you know, and, uh, unlike, apparently, McClellan couldn't see the vast cost of this war every day, no matter how much fighting. And Lincoln could see that, and then Grant could see that. When we come back, we will discuss with Professor Adam Carrington and President of Hillsdale College, Larry Arn, what happened when Lincoln was assassinated, the relationship with Andrew Johnson, and the decision of Grant to seek the presidency, then how he governed as president, and then how he wrote the greatest memoir written by a president ever. I think that's common agreement. In the third hour of today, the Hillsdale Dialogue, The Hugh Hewitt Show. When you absolutely, positively need the truth, this is where you turn. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show. Bonjour, hi, Canada. The Hillsdale Dialogue got started early today because Senator Rubio needs the last segment of today's show, and therefore we began early with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu, including the application that you want to get done for next year, even though I think their application deadline is soon upon us. Am I right about that, Dr. Arn? Correct, Abundo, and applications are strong. You'd better hurry up because one of the few places where college still will be done well if not the only place. I do love my Christian colleges out there. I do love my Chapman, but I'm telling you, Hillsdale is the lantern of the north. Go to chapman.edu and get a, get a giddy-up, and you'll actually have college. Or go to you for hillsdale.com for all of our dialogues. We're also joined by Professor Adam Carrington, grant specialist, and we begin where we left off last hour. Uh, and I'll start with you, Professor Carrington. Lincoln is shot and killed. Grant is in 
the, the business of accepting the, the South's surrender. What happens to Grant at that moment, and how does he go from commander of the armies over a defeated Southern army to president in three years? It's a whirlwind story with lots of politics and the, the, the sad aftermath of, of, of the Civil War. Grant starts out very generous in his surrender terms to Lee, which was typical of him and good-hearted of him. He said, they are our countrymen again at, at Appomattox. And, but immediately, or you know, only a few days after that, Lincoln is shot. And this throws Reconstruction, what we do after the war into turmoil. Andrew Johnson, we talked about last week, the vice president was picked because he was a strong Union Democrat, but was not in line with what with Reconstruction, at least not a vigorous one that was going to protect the rights of free African-Americans in the South, that was going to protect the whites in the South that were sympathetic to the Union and and to African-Americans. And Grant is stuck trying his best as the military commander to actually enforce a lot of the protections in the South and trying to keep order in the South and getting not much help at all from Johnson, who is very angry about that he is warring with the radical republicans in congress and by 1868 as much as grant tried to make peace with both sides the radical republicans and the 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 and johnson it, it, he eventually has to choose sides and he chooses to line more with the radical republicans although not entirely and at that point as the war hero of that saved the union as someone who is at least considered more not more on the side of the radical republicans but still a bit of a a a moderate ground basically he is the nominee if he wants it he's the one real consensus candidate that could truly bring together the republican party the north and win and he decides i think largely out of duty that given his singular place given the destructive part place the country is still in uh, that he he needed to take the job and needed to run and then goes on to win goes on to win the election. Now, Doctor Arn, as a biographer of both Churchill and Lincoln, you know that that spouses are integral to careers. Julia Grant has emerged as a woman of strong character and no small ambition. Uh, what do you understand about her role in his decision to seek political life? Well, what a great woman she was. I mean, first of all, he had a you know, a military career is hard on a woman, a woman, because you move all the time, and he's, and your husband's gone a lot when there's actual fighting. Uh, and then her life was difficult before that because he had a lot of trouble making a living. He, he had a store, failed. He had a farm. He couldn't farm to save his life, hardly. Uh, and so this is a strong woman, a tough woman. And, you know, the drinking problems thing, which I, I think are real, uh, but, you know, there's, you know, how, go back 150 years and find out how drunk a guy was. It's not easy. Uh, uh, Winston Churchill has the same th- rumors about him. Anyway, if those, if those are true, you know, that he had spells when he didn't have much to do and he got depressed and he got to drinking, well, she had to do all of that, too. And uh, then she made a great first lady. I mean, she was something else. 
Now, now, in terms of, I, I got to tell the one bit of historical fact that most impressed the fetching Mrs. Hewitt thus far, though perhaps in an unusual way. He would take son Fred to war with him at the age of 12. He was actually wounded by a bullet, I believe, at uh, Missionary Ridge. Uh, that was a little bit unusual, wasn't it, Professor Carrington? Yes, it was. And I think you all have to understand their particular history, how hard it was on the family and on Grant when they were separated. In fact, that was often a trigger for his drinking was when there wasn't much going on, but also when his family wasn't there. And I think uh, his wife understood that and understood that it was better for the family generally to take that risk of being together for their help. And part of this was uh, an interesting story is Julia comes from a southern aristocrat family in Missouri Grant comes from a hardcore abolitionist family in in the North, and they didn't get along. So when they tried to stay with family, it was often really hard. So I think for the integrity of the family, sometimes you have to make certain choices in the context. And I think I don't I think she was certainly worried in those instances, but thought that having the family together was better for her husband and her family. So they plunge into politics, perhaps having plunged through the terror of war, and I mean really plunged into war. They they are on the outskirts of Vicksburg when famine and death is all around. They are a hard lot. Uh, they they take it on. They win. How close was the campaign, Professor? Was it was it uh, that brought Grant? Was it a wipeout? Are you speaking of Vicksburg or, or the Civil War? No, the the first the... election when he won the election. Oh. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I was hearing about Vicksburg and, and thought, well, that was a pretty pretty wipeout. Uh, he, he won a, a dominant electoral vote count. He won about 53, a little under 53% of the popular vote, and that was a surprise and a little bit of a worry for Republicans because they thought, given that this was in the shadow of the Civil War, that the Democratic Party would be so seen, especially in the North, as still connected with rebellion and with slavery, that it would be even a bigger win. But I would say that uh, it, it still was a, 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 a solid victory and gave him a starting point for what became an extraordinary task as president in trying to continue Reconstruction and do the, the many tasks of keeping the peace after the war had been concluded. Now, Mississippi, Texas, and Virginia didn't get to participate. So if they'd actually had uh, readmission at that point, doubtfully would have won the popular vote, correct? Well, it, it depends upon how much African Americans would have been able to participate. It's pretty, it, it's, uh, most historians believe actually that Grant lost the white vote nationally, which was a surprise. I mean, obviously he wasn't going to do great in the South, but that he really won on, on African-American votes. But how competitive the, the, the Republicans were going to be in the South really hinged on two things. The biggest was, can, will African-Americans be able to freely vote? And two, will white, uh, white unionists be able to do so as well? So I think it would have been, it could, it would have been probably a lot closer but later, Virginia went for Grant in 1872. I think it really depends upon the, the, uh, the sub-question of 
how do you integrate and protect African Americans in that polity? If you do it well, then those states could still be competitive. If you don't, then I think it would have been a lock for the Democrats. In 1868, Reconstruction's just getting started. Has the oppression of the freedmen begun uh, with the Klan by 1868? Was it already in full swing with the the rise of the reenslavement de facto underway in the South? By 1868, it absolutely had been. The 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 rise, and it was begun by Nathan Bedford Forrest, one of the most brilliant and, uh, let's say, uh, uh, morally uh, challenged in certain ways of the Confederate generals, someone who really, I think, just loved war in a way that I think is, is a little troubling. I think he's a and, terrorist based upon the execution of prisoners of war because they were freed yeah. slaves. I just think he's a terrorist. Yeah, he, he was, like I said, brilliant, and tr- just because you have intellectual... Uh, qualities doesn't mean you have moral virtue. True. And at, at that point, yes, uh, the, the, and it was a cooperation, actually. There were a number <clears throat> of groups, but especially the Ku Klux Klan, that had, were bringing a wave of terror on the, on the South and, and intimidating voting. And you had Southern governments basically turning a blind eye, allowing them to be the enforcers and seriously undermining whether you could have free Republican government in the South at that point. In the next segment, we are going to focus on exactly what happened to the hopes of the freedmen. Uh, Very quickly, Dash, and then what Grant did in the final segment during his presidency to assist them and the country's reunification. Stand by, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. There's an awful lot that happens in D.C. that you never hear about, unless you're here. When Hugh Hewitt returns. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, joined by Dr. Larry Orne, President of Hillsdale College, and Professor Adam Carrington, also of Hillsdale. All things Hillsdale, collected at hillsdale.edu. Uh, Dr. Arndt, I'll turn to you first. Um, how quickly did Reconstruction fall apart and into a renewed and different sort of bondage for the freedmen in the South? Well, right away, uh, there were so many problems at the beginning. And, you know, there were a lot of ups and downs in, in Reconstruction. There was a lot of success, but, you know, along with a lot of failure. First of all, we don't, we're not set up in America to force large segments of the population to do anything it's a free country it's supposed to be right and and so that you know that, that meant they they deployed the military you know they they did that early because of a con, you know a congressional bill that andrew johnson vetoed and then the the republican congress passed it over his veto but they needed that right because who what what force is there in america i mean god forbid that we build a national permanent bureaucracy to tell people what to do all the time all over the country and you know we're on our way toward that so they used the military which in my opinion I don't know what Adam thinks but my opinion is that was the right thing to do in part because at some point it could be over uh, but then on the other hand you know Lincoln says that wonderful thing uh, a near universal opinion I don't have the exact quote you know, cannot in a free country, in a representative country, cannot be safely ignored. Well, they're going to use some force, and they should have, and, and, and it worked a lot 
and it didn't work a lot. You know, and I've got to ask you, Dr. Arn, Paul Bremer made an infamous decision in the occupation of Iraq to disband the Iraqi army, and chaos engulfed the country for a decade, and only the surge stopped it. Was there any similar enormous consequential error at any point in Reconstruction? Uh, I don't know. I'll turn to Adam about that. Uh, uh, what I know is it was a mess. And Grant, by the way, in the immediate after the mass of the war, when he was still the Union commander and in the field, he was very effective at deploying troops to, uh, to protect the freed African Americans. So, Professor Carrington, was there any single thing, or was just the scope of the challenge too great and the hatred among former enslaver and newly freed people too too vast? I think it's hard to pinpoint one failure. There's not really a silver bullet, and, and I think a lot of people sometimes try to do this with Reconstruction and other things. But, no, I don't think that there was one silver bullet. I You can quibble with certain things. A lot of it, too. The other issue is how the the North finally got tired, and we, we sometimes blame them for that, of being tired and wanting to move on. And to a certain extent, that's absolutely true, given what was going on with, with fellow citizens in the South. But this is also a, a part of the country itself that had been bled dry, had lost so many people, had lost, had had such, uh, uh, had given so much that uh, there was a bit of an exhaustion too. I think I think uh, Dr. Arn is right that there's a limit to how you how the extent you can change in such a short period of time, such an entrenched mindset and culture. And I think some very good things were done and some very effective things were done. But I don't think the North had the will, nor was it politically possible, given the conditions in the South, to do a whole lot more than I think what was tried in that time frame. How, uh, last question of this segment quickly, Professor Kieran, how strong did the Klan eventually become? What was its apex? Its apex was really 1868 to 1870, 1871, and there were points where, especially parts of South Carolina, it basically dominated politics, it dominated social life, you could not really move other than being in, in conformity with the Klan, so much so that the last time we have had a suspension of habeas corpus was Grant doing so in nine counties in, in uh, South Carolina because the Klan had basically taken over from the normal government, and it was so, such a terror that they had to go in with those extreme measures to shut it down. So really they had become the de facto rulers of much of the South at that point. When we come back, the Grant presidency, what it should be known for, what it is known for, a summary with Professor Adam Carrington and President of Hillsdale College, Larry Arn. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu, our great sponsor. Stay tuned. You're in the middle of a non-stop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. 
with Dr. Larry Arnpreden of Hilldale College and Adam Carrington, Professor of History at Hilldale College. And we have finally come to the Grant administration. And when he took office, violence in the south of the cert, we just talked about South Carolina in open rebellion, no GOP in the south, and the north exhausted and somewhat broke. So how did he go about it, Adam Carrington? What did Grant do as president that we ought to remember and celebrate? I think that even with limited resources, even with the massive task of the resistance he was up against, I think he marshaled all of his forces, all the forces at his constitutional disposal to do what he could in the South. And there were a series of enforcement acts that he pushed for for, for Congress. He was a vigorous defender of the 15th Amendment that gave voting rights or said that one could not discriminate voting on the basis of previous slavery or, or, or race. And he actually for was able to do some remarkable things. The 1872 election was the freest and most uh, uh, protected election in the South until the 1960s. And he was able to act basically through some swift, decisive prosecutions and military intervention to break the Klan. The Klan we think of in the 20th century was actually a restarting of the Ku Klux Klan. He was able to break it in its first iteration and for a time was able to truly give uh, give at least uh, uh, the, the, the at least a taste of how the principles of the Declaration of Independence should have been played out in a in a republic where all men are considered created equal. And Dr. Arm, people associate the 14th Amendment wrongly with Lincoln. It's a Grant Amendment, and they don't. And the Supreme Court butchered it with the slaughterhouse cases. It's uh, Clarence Thomas has the clearest view of what it ought to have been. It did not become that, but by ways diverse and complicated, it's getting closer to what it was intended to do on race, and it's gone full expansion on um, other areas. But it, it is a Grant achievement, not a Lincoln achievement. That's right. Well, you know, I mean, everything after 1860 is a Lincoln achievement. <laughs> okay. Well put. Well put. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and what the, what the, Civil, Rights, the, the Civil Rights Act overturned in the in two sets of cases, the slaughterhouse cases and the civil rights cases, what it did is a brilliant distinction, and that is, if you you know, because how much can the government control private action, and that's you know a sensitive question in a liberal society where people are supposed to be free, and so the line that it drew was, if you're going to if you announce that you're letting the public in, you got to let them in. And that means restaurants and accommodations and everywhere people go in public where people open their doors and say, come in and buy something or come in and do something. And the attempt to enforce that, and that looked to me like, it's always looked to me like, that would have worked. And, uh, uh, they, and you know, it, the Supreme Court overturned it, and they, they took this distorted view of the 14th Amendment in doing so. Uh, and, and we've been working our way back to the what was the intention of it by crazy means since then, yeah, because right. they gutted the Privileges and Immunities Clause. That's right, because equal protection of the law is the place to put all that stuff, because obviously that's what equal protection of the law means. And they they took that away, the Supreme Court did, and that's right. And Clarence Thomas, you know, who's the greatest 
uh, he, he's the one who's articulated how we should go back to that case and start back over and use the Equal Protection Clause because it gives a much clearer guidance. And the Privileges and Immunities Clause. It was a very easy-to-understand act, and it was a very easy-to-understand amendment. And the Supreme Court has truly bollocked it up. And incorporation doctrine had to... I've taught this forever, and the students look at me and wonder at how the Supreme Court could have gotten it wrong. And Adam Carrington, had the Supreme Court reverted in part to its Dred Scott-like days of trying to interfere with the emancipation of the freedmen? Well, I think in some ways they reinstated Dred Scott in a, in a minor way as far as priv- uh, citizenship of state versus citizenship of nation with Slaughterhouse. But I think that the, the, the minor defense I'll give of them, which is building off something that, that uh, Dr. Arn said, is they were concerned about the future of federalism. Typically, the protection of life, liberty, property, your natural rights had been mostly done by the states. There was a worry that the states were going to be overwhelmed and swallowed up by the national government by the, the force of the Civil War plus these new amendments. And they were trying to draw a line that preserved a role for the states. I think in doing so, though, they misunderstood how utter neglect by a local government to protect the life, liberty, and property of its citizens and persons is a derogation of its duty and I think could be seen as a der- as, as not following its own the mandate to give equal protection of the laws. So I think it, it, it had a good worry it had more than it wasn't merely race, it wasn't merely these other things it's been accused of, but they drew the line too cautiously and didn't realize the damage it was doing to, to the freedmen and to the, the attempt to build a true Republican government in the South. And so uh, how much, people don't know that Section 1983, which remains the great, federal bulwark against out-of-control states is actually born of the Grant administration. And so when we see Section 1983 actions brought today, and they are brought all over the United States all the time to restrain uh, the actions of state and local officials who are violating federal constitutional right, that's a Grant-era law. It's a you know part of the KKK Act, but it's a Grant-era law. Is there is there other part, is there another part of the Grant legacy that we ought to to hold on to, Professor, and hold up? I think his character is something to remember, that the character matters and the man that holds an office matters, and that while he was an imperfect man, we haven't talked about how he wasn't always the best judge of character and who he, who he hired or worked with, but it was more his own innocence. He was a man unflinchingly dedicated to the principles of the Declaration of Independence. He was unflinchingly dedicated to the American Republic and the Constitution. And he was a man, unlike many uh, in, in the history of the world, who served because he believed it was his duty as a citizen and as a human being. And I think men like that need to be celebrated as much as we can because they're, they're, they're always fewer than we need. And that's why the Grant Renaissance, Dr. Ron, and it's a great place to end with your comments about, is so timely and it's launched by Chernow. And now people are beginning to realize that when he wrote the best memoir ever penned by a president, it's about his Civil War day, he was dying and could barely swallow water because of throat cancer. And he had lived as a consequential post-presidency, but history has distorted it because of his drinking, because of uh, Professor Carrington just mentioned 
his almost inevitable trusting of the wrong people. But he was a good, a great man, and it came through in his memoir. Yeah, well, you know, the scandals about Grant and his presidency are, you know, people gave him things, personal things, a house, for example. And that wasn't against the style back in those days, and there's no evidence that he ever did anything for them in exchange. But some of them were not good people. And that's what Adam said about not being a good, good judge of character. On the other hand, on the other hand, his story is kind of like Harry Truman's, right? When Harry Truman finished being president, he went by himself with his wife to the train station and got on a train, went home, lived in the house he'd always lived in. And Grant, you know, Grant fell into hard times. Grant was never any good at money. And he had to write that autobiography urgently to get some money for his family after he died. Because he'd been swindled by a business partner. He had lost everything. Yeah, he was not. You know, if he had been that foolish, uh, we would have never, in war, we would have never won the Civil War. And uh, and that's just his, that's the thing about him. Quick characters are in a range. But I, I mentioned earlier, a fella who has a long career and stands up beautifully, despite some exceptions all through it, that's a very rare thing, and uh, we rightly respect and honor people who achieve that. And I wonder then, if we can close, he is also a beautiful writer, and his military career is marked by brevity and clarity, as well as command of battlefields and armies, but his, his dispatches. And then he sits down to write as he's dying, and he does 350,000 words, and Mark Twain denies that he had much of an editorial role, though he had a great role as publisher. He just basically dictated through a cancer engorged throat what what is a genius bit of work yeah and that you know that uh mental capacity because that's a you know a, a grand thing to be able to do and what you said about his orders right they reflect uh, a, a a habit of mind and a capacity of mind in a in a battle you know, big, bloody, something awful. Battle of Shiloh, for example, was just going completely wrong, and Grant was on the wrong side of the river. And everybody was running away. And he he, he just saw the nub of it, and he turned it around. And it turned into, you know, a, a, something better than a stalemate. Uh, well, he, and he did that on many second days of battles. Oh, and yeah. Missionary Ridge, he was a second-day wizard. But see, think how much... That takes two things, right? Courage. There's a terrible temptation for generals to panic because they don't want their army destroyed. And it can happen in a hurry, right? So he had courage. And because he had courage, he could think. And he could grab the, grasp the nub of the problem. Well, that autobiography, he has a wonderful understanding of what he ought to be talking about, what you need to know. And it's just, you know, so he's just... Uh, extremely insightful human being. And it sold, and it sold, and it sold. It did save his family, and it has gone down as the best bit of writing by a president other than the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address. I'll put that in there for Jefferson and Lincoln's sake, uh, Dr. Arn. Uh, I want to thank Professor Carrington. Come back early and often, Professor Carrington. And Dr. Arn, thank you as well. Two weeks of grant that will stand on their own for a very long time of the Hillsdale Dialogue. Everything Hillsdale is collected at hillsdale.edu. All of our conversations about all of our subjects going back 
are at HughForHillsdale.com. We come back with John Winthrop next week, and then eventually we're going to turn to great figures in history, but we've got to do a little bit more pre-constitutional origins of it. We've done the laws of Virginia, we've done the Mayflower Compact and the Salem Convention, and then we're going to turn to John Winthrop and a couple of more things, and of course, Thomas Paine. Then we will go to great figures. We have a plan, and if you stick with us week in and week out, You'll get a taste of Hillsdale, but what you really want to do is go to hillsdale.edu and watch its video courses, use it to teach your children in this period of shutdown, and if you have a senior, uh, go and get an application and try and get them into the Lantern of the North, Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. This is the Hugh Hughes Show.